Good morning. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of the teaching team. And I want you to imagine something for a moment. Some of you, you'll have to use your imagination. Some of you have lived this experience. I want you to imagine that you just start noticing you're not feeling right physically. Maybe it's a pain in a particular place or uh, maybe it's a lump or a mass that you start to go, oh, that doesn't seem right. Maybe you start getting headaches or maybe there's kind of intestinal and kind of gut type issues and you just, you just not, you're not feeling right. And at first you kind of go, yeah, that's weird. And then it doesn't really get better and you go for a few more weeks and you're still feeling it. At this point, if you're a guy, you've maybe told your wife and she's like, well, you should go to a doctor. And you're like, I don't go to the doctor. And so you go a little longer, but you start realizing, like, man, this, this thing's not getting better. This isn't going away. And maybe I, maybe I do need to see a doctor. And so you go and you see the doctor, and then the doctor runs a series of tests and asks questions and does stuff like that. And then it's time to have the meeting where the tests have come back. What do you want in that meeting? Now, you probably first thought, well, I want good news, right? I, don't want, I want the mass to not be cancerous, or I want this to be like not as big of a deal as I thought. You, you want good news, and of course you do, but there's actually something you want more than that. You want the truth, don't you? Because if you get good news, but it's not true, hey, it's no problem, but it actually is a problem, that's a problem, <laughs> right? You, you, you want good news, but you want the truth. And when the doctor says, hey, this is actually worse than you thought, and uh, here's some aggressive things that need to happen, you don't say, well, gosh, doctor, you're so pessimistic. You say, no, thank you for being honest. Thank you for giving me the reality of this situation. You appreciate that because you need the truth. When a similar way, we can look at the world around us and go, this doesn't feel right. We can look at our own lives and see the brokenness and the dysfunction and the ways that we don't really do the things we want to do and we do the stuff we don't want to do and, and we often just seem so out of control. We can think about the anxiety and the fear and the challenges that we face and we can just go, gosh, this just doesn't, this doesn't feel right. Something doesn't feel right. What Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3 is, is sitting down with the doctor and getting the truth. You might read it and think of it being pessimistic. It's not pessimistic. It's realistic. It's saying, here's the reality of your condition. Here's the reality of our world's condition. Here is why things are the way they are. It's an accurate diagnosis of what it is to live in a sinful and broken world. Now, this is an important section for us to dig into today for a couple of reasons. The first is this really marks kind of a whole new section of the book of Ephesians, almost a little mini-series within this longer series. So the whole series of Ephesians is about 40 weeks. We spent the first chunk of it in chapter 1 looking at the glorious gospel of Jesus. This really begins a new uh, kind of sub-series that will go through chapter 2 into the beginning of chapter 3 about how we are reconciled with God and with others. That the good news of the gospel is that God, even though we were his enemies, he reconciles us to be in relationship with him, and he takes different kinds of people who would not normally get along and brings them together as well. And so this particular passage sets up that whole discussion that we're going to be having over these next few months. Now, the other thing that this does, the other reason this is big, is because this message today is really part one of a three-part message 
that will be today, part one, Friday, part two, as we celebrate Good Friday. Hope you'll come to that, 4 and 5.30 p.m. And part three will be Easter Sunday. So really, in order to fully appreciate what's happening next weekend, you have to really come to terms with what we're talking about today. It's really part one of three. We're going to raise some problems, introduce the good news today. Friday, we're going to see about how God did something to intervene in that. And Sunday, we're going to celebrate that that thing is that Jesus is risen, conquered over Satan's sin and death. This is the beginning of Holy Week. Holy Week is that week that the church has looked to over the centuries, beginning with today, Palm Sunday, and looking ahead to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's interesting, on Palm Sunday, it's called Palm Sunday because when Jesus was riding triumphantly into Jerusalem on a donkey, there were people waving palm branches, and they were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! Do you know what Hosanna means? Earlier we sang hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. It doesn't mean that. That's what a lot of people think it means because we sing it in songs. Do you know what Hosanna means? Hosanna means God save us. So as Jesus is riding on this donkey into town, they're waving palm branches and they're shouting, God save us! God save us in the highest! Hosanna! That's what they're doing. And this is a perfect message to begin Holy Week with because it helps us see why we need saving. It helps us see why the cry of our heart really should be, Hosanna, God save us. God save us in the ultimate, save us in the highest. And that's what Jesus came to do. So, let's pray. Father, we invite you now to speak by your spirit, through your word. God, I pray for the hostile takeover of the heart by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. God, could we embrace the reality of this painful truth that we desperately need saving? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this whole section of verses, these first three verses of chapter 2, are all about sin. And in these verses, we're going to see four things about sin that are more significant than you think. Here's the first one. Sin is much bigger than you think. Sin is much bigger than you think. Now, the initial description of sin seems to be what we would normally think of. Look at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, when we hear about sins, if we ever think about that word at all, we think about it as kind of breaking the rules. Uh, which is kind of indicated in that word trespass, right? You saw the sign, don't trespass, you do it, you, you broke the rules. But notice Paul uses two terms here to describe it. He says trespasses and sins. We might try to say, well, what's the difference? Does he mean two different things? What he means is you can't just define sin in one word because it's so broad. It's bigger than you think. It involves trespasses and sins. There's lots of words we could use to describe sin. There's places in the Bible that actually give these various lists of kinds of sins. And uh, the Apostle Paul gives one in Galatians chapter 5. He says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. So there's another word. It's trespasses, it's sins, but it could also be works of the flesh. Here's what it says. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, 
fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it's interesting when you see these lists, because they're not always the same lists, right? The list in this book and the list in that book, they're, they're all slightly different. And you kind of get this idea even through highlighting the phrase, things like these. <laughs> What's Paul saying? Oh, it's a long list. You know, there's stuff on here you maybe thought of, like, sexual immorality or uh, anger, but other stuff you probably didn't think of, like strife and jealousy. Sin is more than just the Ten Commandments. It's lots of different things. There's lots of different ways. Why? Because sin is bigger than you think. But sin isn't bigger than you think just in terms of the individual way that we think of it and the various kinds of sins we can do. It's also bigger in terms of the scope of what sin impacts. And Paul describes that in verses 2 and 3. First, he describes the world. Look at what it says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. In other words, one of the sources of evil, and we saw this at the end of chapter 1, is the world or is society. There is a power going on in the course of the world. This means that sin has impacted not just individuals, but societies. Not just persons, but structures, systems, cultures. This is why there is no such thing as a Christian nation here or anywhere else. Because sin has impacted society and the world. But that's not all that's been impacted. We also see there's demonic power. There's spiritual power. Here's what it says. He says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's kind of a weird phrase, isn't it? The prince of the power of the air. What do you mean, Paul? Well, he means Satan. He means the devil. That angel that had rebelled against God and led a third of the angels away into rebellion who now form this demonic power structure that is against God and his people, that seeks to kill and destroy and weaken God's people. That's a reality in the world. Now, we don't always notice it. We don't always feel it. But, but just think, even in this phrase, the prince of the power of the air. There's times when like a mob gets together, big groups of people get together, and they do things they wouldn't normally do individually. They do things and go, gosh, I, how, did, how did, that person's normally rational and thoughtful and sane, and they were just crazy. And, and what you might describe, if, if you talk to people who are in moments like that, they'll say, there was something in the air that day. There was just something in the air, like it was charged. Why? Because we don't just live in a rational, logical, natural world. We live in a supernatural world. And there's a prince of the power of the air who influences things and uses his power to bring evil into the world. And Paul says, listen, sin is so big that it impacts the world. It involves societies. It involves structures. It impacts Satan and spiritual dimensions, the devil. But it's also in ourselves. Look at what he says in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the third dimension of evil, the third way that sin is bigger than we think, is with the flesh. It's with the self. 
So get this, we can't just say, well, 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 I'm, I'm born in a sinful world. We can't just say, well, the devil made me do it. No, there's something in our flesh. We sin because we want to. We carry out the desires of the body and the mind. And sin is bigger than we think because it's not just isolated to a few people. Right? We can't just say, oh, well, those are the sinners. Those are the bad people. There's good people and there's bad people. There's good people and there's really evil people. No, sin is bigger than you think. And since sin is bigger than you think, it affects everybody. Look at what it says in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived. All of us. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. So sin is bigger than you think. It involves many more trespasses and sins than you think. It impacts more dimensions than you think, the world and the flesh and the devil. But it also impacts everybody. You can't say, well, I'm one of the good people. No, 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 no. Because all of us are in sin. Like the rest of mankind, as Paul writes in Romans, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is much bigger than you think. It's, it impacts everybody. A friend of mine says, if sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. You could say, if sin were yellow, we'd all be minions. You get the idea. It, it, it permeates us. Sin is bigger, much bigger than you think. Second thing this passage tells us is that sin is much deeper than you think. It's not just bigger. It's not just broader. It's deeper. Right? We think about, the, 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 we think about sin being our, our actions. And then Of course, it is our actions, because look at what it says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, right? This involves your actions. Verse 3, we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out, right? So this definitely involves our actions, but notice it's a deeper thing. Sin is deeper than just our actions. It also involves our desires. Look at what it says, verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out, The desires of the body. Why do we sin with our actions? Because our hearts are sinful. It's out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. It's because of the idolatry in our heart that our actions are unclean. Sin is deeper than you think. You can't just control the behavior. You have to change the heart. It's deeper than you think. It involves your body, but it also, do you see what it says in verse 3? It involves your mind. This is why, by the way, the further along you go as a Christian, the more aware you are that you need God's grace. Because early on, when you first hear the gospel, what happens is you realize, oh my gosh, there is a holy God, he is righteous, and I'm sinful. And you think about your sinful actions, maybe how you get drunk, or maybe how you, you know, you you think of these big things. And you go, wow, that, you know, yeah, I, I need to change that. Man, I, I lose my temper all the time, and, you know, I, I'll do all these big things. And over time, what you realize is if you needed God's grace to cover that, you actually need God's grace to keep covering you because the gap almost feels bigger. You realize, you know what, before I, I, I had to repent of the bad stuff I did. Now I realize my desires are bad. My motives are bad. My actions actually start to look better. God's changing that, but my heart feels sometimes like it's worse. Why? Because sin is much deeper 
than you think. This is why we don't just say, well, the gospel is for, Christian, for non-Christians, and then Christians just need some rules. No, no, no. We believe the gospel is the milk and the meat of the word. It's not just the ABCs. It's the A to Z. It's what we need, this good news of the gospel. Why? Because sin is much deeper than you think. It's so deep that actually Paul says sin is in our very nature. Do you see that in verse 3? Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature. We do this automatically. We do this by default. You don't have to teach us to live selfishly. You don't have to teach us to build a life apart from God. You don't have to teach us to do that. Now the world and the devil contribute and make it worse, but we sin by nature and we sin by choice. One of my favorite examples of this, I think I shared this a few months ago, but it's the idea of the vulture. You get a vulture in the back and he's really hungry. We could get two bowls up here, one bowl of lettuce, one bowl of raw hamburger meat, ground beef. We turn that vulture loose, which bowl is he going to? The ground beef. Well, what if we get another vulture? The ground beef. What if we get 100 vultures? The ground beef. Why? Because he's a carnivore by nature. The only way that that vulture, who has absolute permission to go to the lettuce, the only way that's going to happen is if we take out his little vulture heart and we put in a like gazelle heart. <laughs> we have to change his nature. Why? Because... Because that's a, it's a deep thing. Now, we are, get this, we are created in the image of God. We do lots of good as image bearers of God, but that, even that image is broken, it's shattered, it's corrupted, it's twisted by sin. This is why we need God to intervene. We will not on our own choose to follow God unless God intervenes by his grace. Why? Because we are by nature sinners. Sin is bigger than you think. It's much deeper than you think. Third, it's much worse than you think. It's much worse than you think. Now, it'd be bad to say, okay, you're made in the image of God. God created you to enjoy him and to know him and to love him. You're made in his image, and you have decided to say, you know what? I'm going to live for myself. I'm not going to live for God. I'm not going to live for his glory. I'm going to worship and serve created things rather than the creator. That would be bad enough. It also would be bad enough to see all of the blessings of God. God makes his reign to fall on the wicked and the good. God extends grace through his creation to all of us, and we see that. We see that the scripture tells us that, that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, which means if not for the grace of Jesus Christ sustaining us, we would evaporate. That's the reality, and still we go, yeah, I don't really want anything to do with you, God. That's bad enough, but sin's even worse than that. Look at what it says in verse 2. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Do you know what this means? We are followers of Satan by nature. And when we put it in those terms, you go, whoa. Right? Like imagine if you know, we went over to Costco or went down to the Olive Mill and we just started to grab people and said, hey, did you know that you're a follower of Satan? <laughs> people go, whoa, 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 what, what do you mean? 
Or if I were to tell you, hey, apart from Jesus, you're a follower of Satan. You go, no, 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 I was never part of the church of Satan. Weren't you? Now, there is a thing called the church of Satan that people formally join. And they have a great commandment. Just like Christians have a great commandment. Right? Jesus summarized the whole of Scripture and said, here's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment. You know that the official church of Satan, I'm not making this up, has a great commandment. Here's what it is. Thine own will is the whole of the law. Your own will is the whole of the law. The best thing you could do is whatever you want. Does that sound familiar? Why does it sound so familiar? Because by nature, we are followers of Satan. It's worse than you thought. You're not just rebelling against God or ignoring God. This says, and you go, gosh, that's so dark. Yeah. Don't take it up with me. Take it up with Paul. Following the prince of the power of the air. This is the mantra we live by. Just do what you want. Do what seems right to you. We might add, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, but we don't really mean that part. Your own will, your own desire is the whole of the law, says the church of Satan and everyone else by nature. Sin is much worse than you think. Last, sin is much more devastating than you think. Sin is much more devastating. It's bigger, it's more comprehensive, it's deeper, it's, it's in our very nature, it's worse, it's actually following Satan. We go, ah, I don't want ever want to do that, but it's also much more devastating than you think. The consequences of this sin are so devastating. Look at what it says in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead. This is what God had told Adam. When you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans, the wages of sin is death. We are like zombies. We're the walking dead. Our bodies are moving, but our hearts are dead. No spiritual life, no spiritual pulse, cold, lifeless, dead. Now, a lot of times people want to think, well, that sounds really bad. Maybe we're just mostly dead. We're just mostly dead. And in order to kind of get a take on that, we have to go to this incredible prophetic movie that has served us for many years. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called The Princess Bride. And Miracle Man Max has something to say about the difference between dead and mostly dead. Take a look at this. Beat it or I'll call the Brute Squad. I'm on the Brute Squad. You are the Brute Squad. We need a miracle. It's very important. Look, I'm retired. Besides, why would you want someone the king's stinking son fired? I might kill whoever you wanted me to miracle. He's already dead. He is, huh? I'll take a look. Bring him in. I've seen worse. Sir? Yes? Sir? Huh? We're in a terrible rush. Don't rush me, Sonny. You rush a miracle, man, you get rotten miracles. 
You got money? 65. I never worked for so little, except once, and that was a very noble cause. This is noble, sir. His wife is crippled. Children are on the brink of starvation. Uh, you are a rotten liar. I need him to help avenge my father. Murdered these 20 years. Your first story was better. Where's that bellows cramp? He probably owes you money, huh? Well, I'll ask him. He's dead. He can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. Mostly dead is slightly alive, Miracle Man Max says. But Paul doesn't say we're mostly dead. He doesn't say we have the ability to wake ourselves up out of this condition. He says, no, you're dead. You're dead. Sometimes people will tell a story about the gospel where they'll say something like, you know, there's a man drowning out in the ocean and the gospel is God coming along with a life preserver and throwing it out to him and saying, just grab onto the ring and we'll, we'll bring you in. And I, 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 what I like about that image is that it shows that there's a God who pursues us. There's a God who seeks us. There's a God trying to save us. The problem with the image is it assumes that the person drowning is alive. They can't grab the ring. They just sink to the bottom because they're dead. Without God's intervening grace, without God awaking us by his spirit, we're dead. Not mostly dead, all dead. That's much worse than we thought. But it's even worse than that. Look at what it says in verse 3. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This means we may not be as bad as we could be, but we're as bad off as we could be because we're dead and we're children of wrath. Another thing people will say, we'll talk about how we're all children of God. And what I appreciate about that is the idea, I think what people are saying there is we're all made by God. We all, love, we all are loved by God. We're, we're image bearers of God. That's absolutely true. But the only sense in which every person on earth is a child of God is if we're children of wrath. Do you see it? Like the rest of mankind. We are by nature children of wrath. We're children of God's wrath. Why? Because we sin by nature and by choice. Because we've built a life apart from God. Because God has said, this is the way to life. This is the way to joy. And we've gone, I don't want to do anything with it. And so sometimes God's wrath is God just giving us what we want. That's what it says in Romans 1. God just turning us over, saying, okay, if, if you want to build a life without me, go for it. That's a form of God's wrath. Sometimes it's actually God pouring out his righteous anger and punishment on sin, which is what he will do for all who do not turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. You go, gosh, that sounds so harsh. It sounds so mean. Listen, it's the flip side of God's love. If you really love somebody, you are righteously angry when that person is harmed. If God is the supreme joy of the universe, then anything that says, nah, no, he's not, is unloving. 
And it is most loving for God to to be jealous for his glory. Because in seeing him as glorious, in seeing him as the treasure, we actually find life and we do good. If we ignore that, that's what leads to all of the brokenness, all of the, the wickedness in this world. Look at what Tom Wright says. He says this, Wrath is not God losing his temper and lashing out. It is the necessary reaction of the holy God against everything that defaces and destroys and corrupts his wonderful creation, and particularly his wonderful human creation. That's part of the goodness of the world that there is, ironically, a God of wrath against everything that corrupts and defaces and damages that good world. It's a good thing that God is full of wrath, but it's a devastating thing that God is full of wrath against us. Years ago, a newspaper in Britain asked different philosophers and thinkers to write in essays answering the question, what's wrong with the world? And supposedly, G.K. Chesterton, who was a theologian and a philosopher, in response to the question, what's wrong with the world, supposedly he wrote in and said, dear sirs, I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. Shortest essay they got. Why did he say that? Because he knew the biblical teaching on sin. It's much more devastating than you think. This is my experience listening to Sam Albury talk last week. If you weren't here, you absolutely should go and you should listen to that message from last week. It's one of those messages I wish everyone in my life everywhere could hear it. It was so good. There's a guy dealing with same-sex attraction and trying to follow Jesus. and, And I... I just listened to it and went, wow, I'm a sexual sinner. He said, nobody's straight, everybody's skewed, everybody's bent. That's right. I I listened to it and I couldn't possibly rise up in judgment against other sexual sinners. All I could think about was, was mine and how absolutely deserving of God's wrath I am. And how unbelievably thankful I am for the grace of the gospel. Made me think of the story Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector. He said two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee. They were the most righteous people, at least that's what everyone thought. And he stood and he prayed with his chest up and his head confident. And here was his prayer, God, thank you that I'm not like these other men. I give, I fast, I pray. God, thank you that I'm great. I can just see him beating his chest, booyah, you know, while he prays. The other man was a tax collector, someone who'd sold out the Jewish people in order to collect taxes for Rome, often doing so with theft and all sorts of dishonesty and evil. And that man, that tax collector, Jesus says, stood a long way off. He couldn't even really come near And with his head down, it says he beat his chest in agony and in grief. He said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Sin is much more devastating than you think. Now, I want you to imagine something. Imagine this is the end of the story. Imagine we didn't have verse 4, 
5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. Imagine this is it. Imagine if there was no mercy. Imagine if you shouted out, Hosanna, God save us, and all you heard was silence. Imagine if God gave you what you deserved. God said, you know what? You want to build a life without me? Go for it. Imagine if Jesus did not come. Imagine if there was no mercy. Imagine if there was no hope. Imagine if this was it. We need to sit in that. We're going to sit in it for the rest of this week. Let's pray. God, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked in them. We have followed the course of the world. We've followed the prince of the power of the air. We've lived in the passions of our flesh. We've carried out the desires of our mind and our body, and we are by nature children of wrath, all of us and all of mankind. God, have mercy. Amen. So every week, I get together with the other teaching pastors at Redemption, and we look a few weeks ahead at what we're going to be preaching. And I raised the question in that meeting as we were looking at this passage. I said, uh, how much good news are you going to bring to this? Because it ends at verse 3. There's no good news through verse 3. We had a discussion about, well, will we bring verses 4 and 5? Will we we bring that part in? And and as I thought about that more, I thought, you know what? We're going to have a great time Friday and Sunday celebrating that verses 4 and following are there. But, but now we need to just sit in it. And as your pastor, I want us to feel the weight of this. I want us to mourn and grieve our sin. So the band is going to come up in just a moment. Or they're going to come up now. You guys can start coming up. But they're not going to lead us in a time of singing and celebration. They're just going to play some music. And normally what we do at this time is we would have the ushers come forward and they would have trays filled with bread and juice representing Jesus' body and blood. But today we're going to do something different. We've never done this, but we need to do this today. The ushers are going to come forward. And they're going to pass the trays, but in the trays are empty cups. And as the tray comes by you, whether you're a child or an adult, whether you're a Christian or not, I want you to take a cup and I want you to look at it and think about what if there was no mercy? What if there was no provision? What if there was no grace? What if that was it? staring in an empty cup. Because that is our future. 
without Jesus. We'll have the chance on Friday to come back and have it filled up. But for this week, I'd love you to take that cup, and I'd love you to even kind of maybe keep the cup with you this week as a reminder. So you try to prepare your heart to come in and have Easter not just be a same old, same old. Maybe it could happen that way as you really contemplate where you'd be without the mercy of God. So I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward, and then I'll come back and close our service.